the Philadelphia Experiment. In the long line of possible government cover-ups, the story of the Philadelphia Experiment is one that earns its place, I would say, at least in the top five of all time. In 1940s, did the U.S. Navy develop unbelievable abilities made possible through alien technology? Was it made possible through the theory of invisibility by none other than the genius Albert Einstein, who, by the way, did in fact collaborate with the U.S. Navy? Could the U.S. Navy make ships teleport not only to different locations, but possibly breaking the planes of time itself? As they say, inquiring minds want to know. Join us tonight if you dare as we dive deeper into the Philadelphia Experiment on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Well, like Eric said, sometime around October 28, 1943, Navy destroyer escort USS Eldridge was claimed to have been rendered invisible or, or cloaked Ooh. to enemy devices. Again, this is this is kind of a crazy story. This is right out of sci-fi right and, here. And there's been movies and multiple books, and, and potentially there was more than just the desire to make a ship invisible, but even time travel. Time travel, indeed. Now, let me set the pace here. As you said, We've got the ship, the U.S. Eldridge, that's being fitted with this. But let's go back a little bit. Why would the Navy obviously want to do this? Well, the Battle of Atlantic actually raged from September 3rd, 1939, all the way through May 5th of 1945. During that time frame, there were 72,000 Allied casualties, 30,000 German casualties, 3,500 Allied merchant vessels, and 175 warships that were lost. Not to mention 783 German submarines and 47 warships lost, making shipyards in Britain, U.S., and even Canada steer harder into production to replace the vessels that were littering the bottom of the oceans. There was obviously, uh, you know, the war was going on and there was a real need to step it up, as you might say. So in late 1955, a mysterious package shows up at the U.S. Office of Naval Research. Uh, it was sent there by a Carl M. Allen and marked simply Happy Easter. Incentric, interesting man. Now, this package contained a copy of Morris K. Jessup's book called The Case for the UFO Unidentified Flying Objects. Upon examination of the book, they found the margins to be filled with numerous handwritten notes, uh, written in three different shades of blue ink, and apparently written by three or more different individuals. These individuals were commenting on Jessup's ideas about flying saucers, the, the propulsion systems, their drives, different alien races, and they were concerned that Jessup was too close to discovering the truth behind UFO technology. The truth is out there. Shortly after that, January 56, Allen started sending a series of letters to Jessup. He was using his given name as well as the alias Carlos Miguel Alinde. 
His first letter was a warning to Jessup not to look into the levitation of UFOs. He also claimed scientist Franklin Reno had put these theories into practice at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard in October of 1943. Uh, Allen claimed to have witnessed the experiment, and as he had as he had been serving aboard the SS Andrew Furuseth, which I don't know if that's right or not, but that was a civilian merchant ship that just happened to be there at the time. So this kind of lays the groundwork for what really ends up being a very weird story. Very weird. I'll add in here, uh, Carl Meredith Allen, uh, you'd said, sent him several letters. Uh, I actually found him in my research, 50 possessed letters. We know that took place. We have 50 letters that this guy kept sending this author. That's gotta be borderline like pestering. I mean, 50 letters. Well, let's assume he was telling the truth in the letters. They're fascinating and you really want to know what's going on. If he's not, then yeah, it's some form of harassment. Oh my gosh. Now I'll go back and talk a little bit about uh, Morris Jessup. Now he's the struggling author. Um, he actually had published a novel on UFOs. Uh, this was in the 1950s later on. Had moderate success with it, but uh, he, he really believed and wanted to become a full-time writer, but he really struggled. Uh, he did produce a second book, um, which by most accounts, it was just kind of considered a flop. He said that it is said that Jessup was uh, approached by an eyewitness who shared confidential information on uh, with him regarding the Philadelphia experiment. This is the gentleman you were talking about, Bill, and in hopes that the truth could be shared with you know with the nation, with the world. Uh, the man is believed, as you stated, to be Carl Meredith Allen, uh, which was somewhat of we'll call a conspiracy theorist. Uh, we'll 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 dive into him a little bit more here. But in later years, Jessup's publisher was said to have turned down multiple manuscripts regarding uh, UFO phenomenon that Jessup, the author, just seemed to be infatuated with. He really was one of those that I want to believe, I want to prove this. So when he was a struggling author, this gentleman contacts him, and I think he dove right into the rabbit hole with him. <laughs> uh, and then obviously, as we were talking, 50 letters going back and forth here. You know, he finally, he, I think he, he seized this moment and he thought, maybe this is my big break. So he reached out to some of his news outlets and uh, said, stated to the reporter that he had gained confidential information uh, personally about the Philadelphia experiment. I should say the next day he was uh, found dead by apparent suicide. Uh, he was found in his car with a hose from the exhaust pipe entering the car up through the window. And of course, the conspiracy theory is that he knew or learned too much and simply had to be taken out. Now, friends and family uh, state that, honestly, you know, Jessup, the author, was a struggling author. Uh, his wife kind of left him during that lull and that he had threatened to take his life on several other occasions. Yeah, there's a lot of moving pieces to this story, and, and that's just part of it. So let, let's take a, a moment to talk about some of the, the science, if you will, behind the Philadelphia Experiment. It's allegedly based on, on an aspect of what some call the unified field theory, mm -hmm. which is a, that was a term coined by Albert Einstein. It was used to describe a class of potential theories uh, that would attempt to describe the interrelated nature of electromagnetism and gravity, uh, uniting their respective fields into a single field. You know, the, these seemingly different areas of science were actually related. Some researchers thought some version of this field would enable using large generators and in attached to objects to to maybe manipulate those objects in relation to those electromagnetic fields and gravity. 
So teleportation, you know, levitation. What are we talking about here? Why not? Let's do it all. And if those fields are related, maybe other fields were related. We could argue that the flow of time might be part of this. And that will come up as part of this story. They, they thought that they could render an object completely invisible. And obviously, there's plenty of military applications for something like this. And according to the story, the Navy jumped right in. You know, they, they, they said this had a lot of value to them. You could render, you know, attack ships invisible. You could assault enemy positions without them knowing you were coming. I mean, seriously, this is right out of like Star Trek, you know, cloaking devices and and such. Yep. There's another version of the story that says the researchers were preparing magnetic and gravitational measurements of the seafloor for whatever reason. Uh, They detected certain anomalies and then using this unified field theory, they were able to create the effect they were looking for or, or attempted to create the effect they were looking for. And that some of these experiments might have even been related to work done by uh, SS Obergruppenführer Hans Kammler. Oh, that flows nicely. Back in Nazi Germany. <laughs> I've always loved um, uh, not Nazi German uh, military titles because, yeah, they're so ridiculous. I would feel sorry for the poor embroiderer that had to put all of that on a patch <laughs> to put on. I'm sure they, I'm sure they abbreviate it in some way. <laughs> so the USS Eldridge was fitted with this equipment at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard. Testing on the equipment began in summer of 1943, uh, supposedly to a very limited extent. They just wanted to see what was going to happen. They conducted some experiments. Uh, However, one of these tests made the Eldridge nearly invisible. Nearly invisible. Nearly. Supposedly, a green fog appeared in her place. Mm -hmm. The crew members complained of a severe nausea afterwards, um, but there were other effects on the crew with this first trial run. Uh, Some were defined as gone completely in or. I will say this in quotes. This was, you know, supposedly the official report. They had gone completely bananas. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the official diagnosis, but but obviously some form of mental distress. Uh, some claim to be intangible for a moment, uh, you know, of, of no substance. You could, like a ghost. Uh, some claim to be frozen in place for a moment. Some were found fused to the hull of the ship. This is just creepy as I'll get out right yeah. here. Uh, one one particular instance, a sailor fell through the floor, uh, phased through the floor, if you want to phase through fra- the floor, fl- yeah. phrase it that way. But yeah, he fell through the floor and had his hand stuck in the ceiling. They were talking about literally like people was like going through the door, like their lower torso is in one room and their arm or head had went through through well, the door and was peering through, like melded. Yeah, there's there's a further experiment that goes even further. Ooh. So they felt that that test was not successful. It Probably did not, not achieve what they were trying Probably to achieve. Not. So they recalibrated the equipment, you know, blamed it on, a, on an equipment issue. Kind of went over with a hammer, tapped on a little bit. Yeah. It's good to go now. <laughs> and then they repeated the experiment on October 28th, 1943. And this is the day of what we call the Philadelphia experiment. An eerie green-blue glow surrounded the ship as she fired up the generators. And at that moment, instead of simply being rendered invisible... The Eldridge was immediately teleported to Norfolk, Virginia in a flash of blue light. Mm. Now, that's over 200 miles away from that point. Uh, she was there for several minutes. While there, the SS Andrew Furuseth that I referenced earlier was in harbor and saw her. It just like popped up right next yep. to that ship the way I read it. And then she uh, vanished from from Norfolk and reappeared in Philadelphia. Um, now, there are various claims about what happened during this point. Uh, some say that the warship went 10 minutes back in time when she came back. 
the crew were said to have suffered various side effects again, and this is where they were physically fused to the bulkheads. They Ugh. found crew members like embedded in the walls and things like this. And these guys, I'm I'm hoping you know they weren't alive when this happened. The the many of them suffered mental disorders. Some reappeared inside out. Some people vanished entirely, never to be seen again. Or some reported traveling into the future and back, mm-hmm. which I have a particular witness we're going to talk about later on. And some I believe had like transferred bodies, like their essence, their their spirit was in another person's body and they would meet one another. There was a, it was bad. It was bad. Again, crew lost in space and time. And, and of course, afterwards, they, a lot of the, supposedly the crew that was there claimed to have been subject to brainwashing to maintain secrecy of the event. Obviously the government's going to cover something like that up. Yeah. Now I want to, I want to touch back on the, um, the book that was mailed directly to the U S Navy office. We'll touch on that a little bit. And of course that, um, that comes from that Carl Meredith Allen. Now he also claimed that he personally worked side by side with Albert Einstein during part of his collaboration with the U S Navy. Uh, and that is documented that, um, you know, Einstein worked with, with several branches of the government, not just the Navy, but, uh, in particular, this one was his theory on the unified field, uh, theory. It's uh, very complex, but involved relationships between elementary particles, electromagnetic current, as Bill was saying, but it should be noted and stated that to this day, there's never been any proof that that theory has been proven, much less uh, completed or, or anything to be tested. But that took a weirder twist than the book getting sent to the Navy. The officers of what's called the Naval Research and Investigation Group came and interrogated Jessup on his, on his book, because his name was on it, uh, and his sources, and of course the alleged notations that were handwritten that you mentioned, three separate notations. It is believed that uh, one of them is his own, Jessup's. The other notations would have been Carlos's, um, Mandalay's, or, or Carl Meredith Allen as he went by. And the third, Bill, do you have who the third was? Possibly by an alien life form. I did read that. That wrote the third lo- you know, notations. So you're thinking, wow, this this is, to me, I was saying, wow, this this really took a weird curve. But um, it gets even weirder. So so buckle up, folks. Once they came here, they, you know, interrogated the author. And their next words was, I, I thought, very weird. You know, they said, uh, the Navy stated they were taking all this information back to headquarters and that they would be printing 127 copies of it with the notations for further study. That seems an odd number. It's a weirdly specific number. 127. Now, why would you even tell someone, I'm going to print 127 copies of this? I have always found that the use of a weirdly specific number always prompts a question. If you go to someone and you say, hey, can I borrow 100 bucks? You know, that's one thing. If you go to somebody and say, hey, can I borrow $127.52? Yes. You're buying something in particular. That's very I, that's, precise. That's very <laughs> precise. Not a, not a random number. So, again... This is all taking place. We don't know if any of this is factual, but that's what we're finding in the loose records and, and, and people coming forward. But this Carl Meredith Allen, he would go on to live to be a ripe old age, unlike the author who committed suicide, it appeared, or was snuffed, depending on what, what theory you want to believe. About four years after first hearing from Allen. Yes. But uh, he, this, this man, he goes on uh, dying actually in 1994, so not, not terribly long ago. 
he did state that the reason why he was left alive, implying that the government didn't knock him off, is because he came forward and stated in a statement that it was nothing more than a hoax, and it was to try to increase book sales. Yeah, Alan, yeah, Alan himself came forward to say it was a hoax. But then on his deathbed, he changes and recants that story and says, actually, it was all true, and now as I'm lying here on my deathbed, I really have nothing to lose. The government is behind all of this. They're trying to cover it up. It's the men in black. It literally supports the X-Files and, and all those theories. So just add that salt and pepper to the recipe there. So after the experiment in 1943, allegedly U.S. and British military teamed up to continue working on this technology. They transported all the research and development to a highly secure facility in Montauk, which they called Camp Hero. And there they continue the research that has allowed the military to develop the ability to traverse multiple dimensions, and control the minds of the general public. So, I mean, do you believe that? I mean, they're, they're controlling our brains. Well, they would, could do a better job, uh, I would You think. would think. You would think. Now, you did make a mention of the Montauk there. I, I'll touch on that here yeah. shortly, or we'll get into that a little bit more. That's an interesting story. Now, that kind of wraps up the original first part of the, the Philadelphia Experiment story. And that's bad enough on its own. The idea of Sailors fused to the metal hull of a ship and merged literally with the steel. Yeah, it's awful and and driven insane by their experiences. Memory wipes. In in 1990, uh, uh, Alfred Bielik comes forward. Uh, He used to be a sailor. He was, you know, it's documented he was in the Navy. He claimed that he was aboard the, the Eldridge. When the experiment happened. And I believe his memory, he stated, was jogged after he watched the movie that came out like it was several years yeah. after the movie came out. That's kind of what triggered him repressed memories. But he claimed to be one of those sailors that was lost, though, that never returned in a dimensional jump. Uh, and he claimed that the experiment was never about invisibility, but was actually a time travel experiment. He claims that he and his brother were moved forward through time for a total of six weeks to the year of 2137. August 21st. Uh, He claimed that he was medically treated there with medical treatments, obviously, that don't exist now. Something about radiation treatments that involved vibrations and things like that. Almost 200 years into the future, about 194 years. But he was, uh, while he was there, he got to see maps of what the world looked like. And the world had changed significantly. He said it was, was totally different from the world we saw today. Uh, many of the coastlines had changed from where they were now, uh, had disappeared in his words. The Mississippi River was much wider, 50 plus miles at some points. Uh, many coastal cities, of course, had disappeared. The Great Lakes had become a single Great Lake. Now, as I was looking at his, and I'm assuming it was his map or a rendering of what he was describing at the very least, I did find it interesting that I had seen a similar map before. And I had to think about it for a moment. But it was a map I had seen in an article about climate change and rising sea levels, melting polar ice. Sure, sure. Where it, you know, the Mississippi River was widened. We lost a lot of coastal territory. You know, coastal cities were gone. I mean, his map, most of Florida was missing. And and in that uh, other map I had seen, you know, the East Coast, West Coast, both of those. I think they said Atlanta was 30 miles from the ocean in these maps. Yeah, I remember a similar map, and of course, we're based here in Lebanon, Missouri, and I was thinking, my gosh, we may have some oceanfront property coming towards us. <laughs> so so I, I did find that kind of interesting, that it kind of correlated to, to to research. 
again, this map that I'm talking about, I don't think came to prominence for another 10 years or so. So this was before Doesn't that map existed. Up. Doesn't up. So that's, that's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, he also said that the U.S. and Canadian governments as we know them no longer existed. Uh, we were instead ruled by locally enforced martial law, which, hey, at the rate we're going, who yeah, knows what's going to happen. I think that's, yeah, we're <laughs> knocking on heaven's door right there. Uh, so after his six weeks in 2137, he was again propelled forward in time, and he spent two years in 2749, or starting 2749, I yeah. would assume. Yeah. Uh, he said there, there were these fantastic floating cities that, that, that levitated and hovered above the, the world, and that the world was run by an AI known as the Synthetic Intelligence Computer System. I saw some movies similar to that. Yeah. Now, did he also not state that he was part of the Montauk Project? Well, that does come up in a little bit. Okay. Yeah. So after spending his two years in 2749, he was sent back to 2137 to pick up his brother, who was also tra transported through time with him. Uh, and then from, from there, uh, they were transported back to 1984. These guys were they, yeah, quantum leaping all over the place. Well, they met with Dr. John von Neumann, who convinced them to go back to 1943 and stop the Philadelphia experiment. Now that, that's a movie plot. Yes, yes. Uh, which, of course, they did. They went back and they stopped the Philadelphia experiment. And maybe that's why there's so much difficulty in proving it. All the, the story different theories exists. and bits and fragments yeah. that we know exist, but we can't the quite tie together. But Belick and his brother went back and stopped it. I like what you did there. See, I like see that play. It? But Belick eventually, yeah, he would come to be associated with the Montauk Project and a bunch of other super secret things. Which we know did materialize yeah. and was called the Montauk Project. I mean, there, there may be, I mean, honestly, just reading just a little bit about this guy, there may be a whole episode about him at some point. Well, there's another character, actually two more characters uh, that I think we need to talk about. This would bring us up to about 1994. There was a French astrophysics and UFO researcher by the name of Jacques F. Vallée, I believe is the way you pronounce it. Now, he wrote a book entitled The Anatomy of a Hoax, The Philadelphia Experiment. Jacques Vallée had asked people to read his book, and he said, if anyone knew anything more about it in detail, to please reach out and contact him. While it appeared Valim might have wanted to believe, it, he was most likely very doubtful himself, but he was reaching out to try to help for once and all to prove that it was a hoax in his mind, unless someone could step forward and prove him otherwise. This is where character number five kind of comes in. He's a man by the name of Edward Dugan. Now, Dugan contacts the author stating that he had served in the U.S. Navy during the Second World War, and had very valuable information. Dugan stated that during the 1940s, in fact, the U.S. Navy uh, did experiment with new technology to help them win the battle at sea, and said, yes, it was to make ships invisible. But it's not what you think. But is, is this the degaussing technique yes. of the hull? Yep. To yep. make them invisible to magnetic-based magnetic sea mines. Ships, yeah. Not truly visibly invisible. Now, Dugan goes on to explain the Navy wrapped electrical cables all around the hulls of the ship, trying to reverse the polarity to make the ships invisible to underwater mines and magnet torpedoes. Now, when you say invisible in that sentence, you have to, we need to make air quotes. Air quotes. The ship invisible. is not technically invisible. It's simply undetectable to, like the hull would, would not 
attract magnetic mines and things like that. And you have to remember, now the Germans had had really moved forward with these mines, magnetic torpedoes. They would be anchored on the seafloor, possibly with a chain or whatever. These beach ball torpedoes and mines were then magnetized, floating like balloons, if you will. And of course, these massive steel vessels would move over top and it would pull those right up to attack. And then upon contact, boom. Yeah, if you've ever seen a, a movie about World War II naval warfare in any shape or form, uh, you'll you'll probably see these magnetic mines. Or let, let's uh, James Bond, a lot oh. of the early James Bond movies, yes. they show up a lot. Yep. Now one can understand the possible mix-up if someone overheard just part of the sentence or that story that we're going to make yeah. these ships air quote invisible, but only to mines and magnetic torpedoes. So by reversing the polarity, we're essentially scrambling the electromagnetic pulse. In this theory, it would make the U.S. Navy ships invisible to such attacks. The process is actually called degaussing. In 1994, the Philadelphia Inquirer then ran a very in-depth research article simply titled The Philadelphia Experiment. They reached out to hundreds of naval officers that served in the Navy during World War II during that time frame and several that were stationed on the USS Eldridge did come forward. Among several things they were able to document and disprove, one was an explanation of why so many Navy officers vanished during these tests. Now, Bill had shared, we talked about the, the horrific, I assume, deaths of mangled you, you would hope. bodies sticking out of the side of walls and ceilings and like sunken into the floors, you know. They're saying that they wrote those deaths off to, oh, these men died at sea during battle rather than much closer to the United States, literally around the Philadelphia area. Well, it's, it's not unlike the military to write up an unexplained death as a, a training incident. Well, or and especially like if that. you have secret ops and stuff going on. Yeah, you can't relay that, hey, we were behind enemy lines where we weren't supposed to be, you know, all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, that's that's pretty accepted, I think. But one of the first things that really came forward was the USS Eldridge uh, was documented to have traveled, as, as Bill had stated, back and forth from Brooklyn, New York on the same day it was said to have teleported to Philadelphia. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty good run, but... How, yeah, the Navy has special inland canals. Yeah, imagine this. That they use that are offline to commercial ships. And where it would take a commercial ship two days to make that trip, a Navy ship could make it in six hours. Which would certainly explain, while you yeah. could literally have photos of this ship with, if you could at that time, a date stamp, literally, that it was here, and then six hours, seven hours later, boom, it's all the way to here. That's can't, that can't be possible. <laughs> well, yes, yes, it was possible. And the second is also documented that on July 22, 1943, many naval officers were removed off the USS Eldridge and they stayed in Brooklyn during part of these tests for additional training exercises. So that might also explain someone uh, that would be an onlooker might see the return of the ship with very few sailors left on it is because they were already in a training class. Now, Bill, I think you had a little bit more. Well, as as you were saying, possible explanations, I was going to delve into that, but you kind of touched on those already. You did have the, the degaussing techniques that were supposed to make the ship quote-unquote invisible to mine. I love the air quote, so, invisible. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> when we say invisible in that context, we don't mean invisible as in, you know, you can't see it with the naked eye, but just it was not magnetic enough to attract a mine. Uh, you also mentioned 
you know, the inland canals. Oh yeah. Uh, that allowed that explains, I a think, military a lot. ship to make that trip really quickly. Another thing, the, the luminous aura they su- supposedly saw around the Eldridge. Mm-hmm. There's a phenomenon known as St. Elmo's fire. It happens a lot and happened back in the early sailing days. It still continues to happen, but it's basically that the ship's body, the ship's hull becomes charged with electricity and actually kind of emits a static glow. Uh, apparently it happens to buildings during thunderstorms, uh, storms at sea do it to ships a lot. And so, it, I mean, it happens. It's not an unknown right. f- uh, phenomenon. It's a scientific factor. And let's take it down our kind of our normal path of uh, paranormal. It's documented that people that are exposed to electromagnetic pulses often get nauseous, yep. sick, kind of that seasick yes. feeling. Stories of levitation, teleportation, and the strange effects on the crew could be linked to the uh, large generators required to uh, uh, create this effect. I think that makes perfect sense. Um, USS Timmerman had had large generators like that installed, and they they created a high frequency. It was the high frequency generator produced cor- coronal discharges. That Saint Elmo's fire we were talking about, and, and again, you know, electromagnetic. We talk about that and ghost hunting and whatnot, how, how it can have all kinds of effects on the human mind. Uh, now, on the Timmerman, there were no effects documented, but could have. Now, some further additional issues with the story that make it a little more hard to, to believe, assuming Belick, of course, was not successful. The USS Eldridge was commissioned on August 27th, 1943. She remained in port in New York City until September of that same year. And she would have been in the Bahamas on its first shakedown cruise during October. That's documented with the government. Uh, the ship's logs, of course, may have been falsified. I Could mean, if you're conducting special experiments, you don't want to want to honestly tell people where you're at. Okay, so the Office of Naval Research, which is the organization that supposedly conducted these experiments, was not established until 1946. And in September of 1996, they came forward to say they had never conducted any investigations on radar invisibility either 1943 or any other time. Although, would they admit if they had? There are numerous veterans that have served on the USS Eldridge, and many of them have come forward over the years. And, you know, in a Philly newspaper dated April 1999, they said that their ship had never made port in Philadelphia while they served aboard her. So, hmm. you know, maybe she was never there. Or, or maybe those pesky time travelers Bielik came back, came and, back and stopped them. He changed he he changed it. And there's that figment of that footprint that's still there. I do like the idea that Belik was involved. I do like the idea of him and his story. You know, it all comes together in such a way that it, if his story's completely unbelievable based on the facts, well, that's because he was successful in what he did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's there, well, like he could argue whatever he wants to for his story. Well, and Belick again, you know, he's the one that his memory was jogged. It was kind of pulled out of uh, his memory that had been wiped by watching a scene out of the movie, which he said the movie was very loosely based upon, which I saw it and it is. Uh, but uh, that kind of goes back to help collaborate that the government possibly wiped the memory of the officers so they wouldn't remember or was it simply because they were around electromagnetic pulses and reverse polarity that that possibly did permanent brain damage. I mean, that, that could go a lot of different ways. I think when we talk about grand conspiracies and we talk about the things that our government can do again, you talk about a government that can, you know, barely keep secrets. Most of the time, (laughs) you know, all these things supposedly come out that the government did or didn't do. 
you know, all these scandals that have erupted because, you know, if you think about how many people have to be involved in something like that and the fact that nobody's going to come forward and nobody say something, cracks. come on. Yeah, nobody cracks. So the, these huge grand conspiracies that we talk about sometimes, I mean, just the unbelievability, you know, the fake moon landing, how many people would have had to have been involved in that and no one would come yeah. forward to say, yeah. like, I don't, I don't it's buy It's hard it. to believe. I, now, again, know. like I said, Bielik's story, of course, if he did come back and stop the Philadelphia experiment, then we, maybe we wouldn't have documentation on the Philadelphia experiment. Now, I think, I do believe it was Bielik. I may be off on this. I don't know if you came across it. There was another story I was listening and, and you didn't touch upon, but I think it was Bielik and, and during one of his time travels, because he was gone, as you stated, for several years. Uh, he had an out-of-body experience that led him into the future, and he was linked to another man. However, like his conscious was in the opposite man, and the other man's conscious was in him. And they had swapped their consciences, one with another, in opposite bodies, but they found themselves on a ship. But it was something like a great electrical storm was going on. Uh, and I envisioned like literally at sea, but just this massive electrical storm, you know, thunder, lightning was coming along and it was making the lightning and energy was attacking the ship and it was killing people that was on the ship. So these two men in opposite consciousnesses decide to jump overboard as a way to save themselves. So they didn't perish like the other ones that they had saw on the ship. And in their dive overboard, they jumped. And as they hit the water, the water disappeared and they began to fall endlessly through clouds. Maybe they were on a little acid or something. I don't know. <laughs> but they fell through these clouds and they said it just kept going on endlessly and endlessly. And finally, the two men. Yeah, I've had that nightmare. <laughs> finally, the two men have, you know, they come across the air together and they're able to grab each other's hands. And upon doing so, they both wake up in hospital beds next to one another, they're being treated for severe radiation burns that are all over their bodies. That might be the beginning of the story where I, I referenced that he was being medically treated. Okay. So that might've been part of that. I don't remember that particular lead in. The individual, it. if it, if it was Beal or Bielik stated that, you know, he had his medical files that proved he was treated for this extreme radiation. So they're, Again, there's, it's like breadcrumb trail. You know, there's, there's a little piece of information and here's the story. Maybe he was, maybe medical stuff was <laughs> altered. I, I don't know, but I felt that was a very interesting story. Diving over the ship before you hit the water, it changes to blue skies and clouds and you fall endlessly. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's a bad dream. That's a bad dream. I'd have to say I'm inclined to disbelieve the Philadelphia experiment. Just because of, of some of the, the relevant things. And again, you know, the government's free to doctor whatever documents they want. That's your job. But again, the idea that this would be such a far-reaching conspiracy that would have to have been held in secret, and we could argue, obviously, that that secret has slipped, but the sheer number of people that have to be involved in something like that, again, these, these big conspiracies, they're, they're hard to believe for that reason. Now, I will say, I, I think it is reasonable that the the one gentleman that came forward said that basically it wasn't that it made the ships invisible it was reversing polarity electromagnetism yeah. now that i think that's very believable and i think that's well, very smart i believe that's actually documented 
so that they did that with the Eldridge and at least one other ship at that time. So. But again, you know, somebody walk in on in a room with that story being told and you hear fragments of it. I can see where this could have yeah. went just totally, you know, keltered overboard. So the argument may continue or surely will. Is it real? Is it the truth or is it yet another government cover up or is it all false? Belix saved us all. Yes, he came back and changed time to save us all. <laughs> Many state the government threatened the soldiers to say what they were told to say and nothing else. And the false evidence has long been placed just to cover that trail. As Bill said, that's eh, a little hard to believe with hundreds, if not thousands of people involved. Others may still argue that the soldiers did in fact lose their lives, but they were written off with death at war, as I stated, more about in the ocean and not in some weird scientific experiment that merged their bodies with steel. Teleported them through time. Teleported them through time. Dropped them through clouds with radiation. And still yet, there's rumors that the soldiers' memories were erased, either by an experiment intentionally or uh, possibly just electromagnetics. Time may never tell. We hope you enjoyed this episode of yet another topic that you'll find on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thanks so much for listening. As they say, inquiring minds want to know. Join us tonight if you dare as we dive deeper into the Philadelphia experiment on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. You better hope the people that own the, was it, the National Enquirer are all dead. <laughs> you say that a lot. <laughs> and all I remember is those it's commercials back in the 80s. Inquiring minds want to know. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, Lebanon, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for again supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing, and thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.